0: Hey, let me start off this morning by thanking you for serving during the Christmas break, if you were able to do that, during the Christmas Eve services where there were over 2,000 people in the building, and you guys did a great job. Thank you. Uh, serving teams, parking teams, worship team, children's teams, all of them came together, and God just really blessed the effort, so thanks for being part of that. Um, I'm excited to jump into what we're going to jump into, um, but I'm mindful of that um, it, it's got some depth to it in terms of length. And so um, don't be surprised if this goes a little bit longer than what you're used to. I already apologized to Debbie in the Children's Wing because um, in the first service I went like 20 minutes longer than I intended to. Um, but you know what? It is what it is. I'm just going to let it be what it is. I, I told you uh, before Christmas, before we started the Christmas series, that. This section of Judges that we're about to jump into, especially chapter 15 and 16, is very dark. And I didn't want to do it at that time to move forward with that second part because it was going to land on Communion Sunday. Well, here it is. It landed on Communion Sunday. (laughs) So anyways, um, it, it is what it is. It's very dark. It's got some breadth to it. And just know that this is probably gonna go like 10 or 15 minutes longer than what you're normally accustomed to. But we are gonna get to communion. We're gonna celebrate that together. But before we do any of that, I would love to pray with you. Can you pray with me together? Lord God, I thank you for every single soul that is part of this service. Some may be a week from now, some may be this evening, some right now live here in the auditorium and others through the broadcast. In every single case, I know that You can speak to us. I know, Father, that You wrote this down for us corporately, but You also wrote it down for us individually so that we would understand how You deal with us and how You work through us in spite of ourselves, even when we think we're not worthy of being used. God I ask that You would cause this story to jump off the pages, and that works through the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're inviting right now. We ask that through the spirit that you have given us, that you would give us the capacity to understand what you are communicating. We pray for this in the majestic name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. If evidence were required that all of the Old Testament is pointing forward, towards Jesus, the, the arrival of the deliverer, the rescuer, it's absolutely found in the book of Judges. Samson's story that we're about to look at represents the last of a series of the cycles of apostasy. The nation of Israel in this story is progressively sinking lower and lower and lower, If you're new to church and you're not familiar with the word apostasy, it's essentially this. You know the direction God's calling you toward, but you decide you wanna go the opposite way. It's very clear to you what you're supposed to do, but you're deciding saying, yeah, I'd rather do what I wanna do. That's that's apostasy in a nutshell. And that's what you find the nation of Israel doing in the book of Judges. They know what God has called them to do. Remarkably, that's not only true of the nation at this period of time, But it's also true of the judges whom God has raised up. If you're new to church, let me just explain briefly that the the book of Judges is not about people who sit on a bench and render verdicts. Judges, in this case, are deliverers or rescuers. Jesus being the ultimate rescuer, the ultimate deliverer, we should be looking for evidences of Jesus in the midst of this story. As I study this... I am struck once again and reminded over and over how incredibly patient God is. He's patient with me. Is He patient with you? Yeah, He is. He absolutely is. And you find that all over this story here. Remember that in the book of Judges from chapter 1 to chapter 21, there's 350 years of earth history that's covered. And all of it keeps pointing forward to the distant future. When the ultimate deliverer, the one at the consummation of the ages, arrives on the scene, he will deliver through amazing grace. Now before we jump into Samson's story, let me just step back with you two weeks to the Christmas story and the arrival of the deliverer. Let me show you a verse that maybe a lot of people don't pay attention to when it says something very specific, Luke 2.11, today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In your notes this morning, if you picked them up or maybe you're downloading them right now from the the online service, the notes indicate a Greek word, soter. You see it on the screen. This particular word is the word that the angels are using when they say, for today, born in the city of David for you is a soter. And, And you see all the accompanying words that go with it in the definition. It represents one who is a protector, a redeemer. Notice very carefully, it is a deliverer. This Savior, this Soter, is a deliverer. So it's fascinating to me right away that what God intended for Samson to be, if he had lived out his life the way that God wanted him to, is actually what Jesus ultimately is, a deliverer, a rescuer. Great problem is, it's very, very hard to rescue someone who doesn't want to be rescued. And for someone who doesn't even know that they need to be rescued. So in the darkest days of the nation of Israel, when dedication to God seems to be on life support, like everybody is committing apostasy, they walk the opposite direction from God, at that moment... God Himself says, I'm going to raise up another deliverer. I'm going to raise up one that I'm going to bring forth as a rescuer. And that brings the arrival of this baby boy, Samson. And it's an emphatic declaration by God Himself saying, I'm not going to let these people go. I'm not done with them. I'm still going to work through them. I will not let Israel perish, even though they have abandoned him, even though they have walked away from him. God has a greater objective in mind, an eternal plan that He's working out. So you and I should be reminded that God is working behind the scenes. Let's be reminded of where things are at in culture when Samson was born. Look with me on the screen, Judges 21.5. It says very clearly, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's not saying that because they're making good decisions but because they're making really, really poor choices, their moral compass is gone. So the society that he's living in is filled with individuals who are just like him. They're making choices to fulfill what they want to do. So verse one, chapter 13, I'm just going to give you a summary of where we were at a few weeks ago, to catch you up in about eight minutes' time to where we're launching with today. Verse one reads this way as a summary: "Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years." Now if there is one particular enemy that is a thorn in the side of Israel, it's the Philistines. They're known as the people of the sea in ancient history, especially in the archaeological world. They are warlike, they are powerful, and they're constantly picking fights with Israel at this time. They're exerting pressure from the five cities that they dwell over in the Philistine area. And the capital city is Gaza, what we know today as the Gaza Strip. These individuals at this period of time are the bullies of the neighborhood. And they become the main reason why Israel begins seeking a king in the book of 1 Samuel. What's really conspicuous, though, is as you read the story, you find zero indication that the nation of Israel is crying out to be rescued. Zero indication whatsoever that they want a deliverer. They're not asking to be rescued because they become so complacent, so good with the culture that they're living in. So God has to stir Samson to provoke discontent. I don't know if you knew this about the God of the Bible, but the God of the Bible is a disruptor. He's not content with the status quo. You find that in the book of Revelation. You find that when Jesus is walking the planet. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is forcefully advancing. By the time John speaks to him in the book of Revelation, Jesus says things to him about the seven churches like, I spew you out of my mouth. You're neither hot nor cold. You're just blah. You're sitting there gray. You make no advancement whatsoever. God is not thrilled with complacency, and yet we find that going on here. So part of this quick summary for you is verse 5, and we're told that God shows up and talks to a woman, tells her she's going to have a baby. It says this in chapter 13, you shall conceive... And give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. He shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Logically, because his mom is an expectant mom, you would expect her to adjust her diet accordingly. She's going to stay away from alcohol. She's not going to eat certain foods. And God gives her those instructions, but he goes further and says, this child is going to be a Nazarite. And a Nazarite is way more than just the dietary restrictions. It actually means to be dedicated. And normally a Nazarite vow is for a limited period of time, but this one is going to be for Samson's entire life. So for his life, he's not supposed to touch grapes, raisins, wine, beer. He's not supposed to eat certain foods. And above all, he's not supposed to get his hair cut and he's not supposed to touch dead bodies. And all of this is to symbolize his separation. it's, It's the holiness, a commitment to it, that his life will be this way. So people will look at him and say, yeah, that guy, he belongs to God. Well, if you know the story, you know that Samson violates all three of those. He doesn't go very, very long, actually, where he indicates he does not live a separated life. So we find this summary in verse 24, Then the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. And Samson's early years are covered really swiftly. And before you know it, you find yourself in chapter 14, and he's a grown man, and he's brash, and he's reckless, and he's driven by these carnal desires. And it is not an exaggeration whatsoever to say that he is stubborn, he is irrational, he's got a violent temper. And his interpersonal skills, they're toxic. They really leave something to be desired. All of that aside, spiritually, this guy has a wild disregard for the commands of God. And all of that combines to make his life legendary. And at the very core of his failure is this infatuation with the Philistine women. The very people he's not supposed to associate with. He has unbridled passion for them. So we shift over to chapter 14, and verse 1 gives us a summary this way. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Even though God has explicitly said, hands off, he wants what he wants. So keep going, verse 3. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Essentially saying, it'd be better off if you'd marry one of your cousins, right? Is somebody among our family at least? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she looks good to me. So he insists on marrying a Philistine woman, which is forbidden by God according to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So he sees her, she's hot, he wants her. And this period of time is characterized in Samson's life by everybody's doing whatever they want, whatever they saw fit in their own eyes. Samson is just a representation of that. All of us today sitting here would have to admit that we all have that thing in our life that we are weakened by. That thing that is, if it's improperly managed, it can pull us off mission. And it may be just for a season. But it could be for a very long period of time in your life. And if it's not properly managed, that, that thing can actually become crippling to the greater mission that you were designed for, that God called you for your life. Uh, very, very likely in the moment that I said that, you know exactly what your weakness is. But I promise you, if you don't know what yours is, ask somebody around you. They'll tell you. You, you probably have somebody in your life who is willing to say, yeah, you do. And they might come up with it really quickly, and it might be surprising to you that you don't agree with them. But other people observe, and, you know, the only way to fix a weakness in our life is to know what that weakness is and and be vulnerable enough to ask somebody, say, what what is my weakness? I'd like to know. Well, in Samson's life, the kryptonite in his life is women, and he is really narcissistic. And by that, mean, I mean he's so self-absorbed. Everything is about him. Both of those combined together compromise his mission, and they pull him off mission. But remarkably, God's going to be working through his really bad choices, because nothing surprises God, right, church? So God saw this coming. God knew exactly what Samson was like, and He determined that He's going to use that in Samson's life to create tension between Israel and the Philistines. Look with me at verse 4. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for He, meaning God, was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. So it's God's hand that's at work. It's a really good reminder for us as we come into this new year. We get we 300 and what? 60 days ahead of us, 359 days at this point. Maybe you've made a decision to do something different in your life this year. Maybe you're six days past that date where you've already messed up that commitment to do something different in your life. But be reminded at the threshold of this new year that God is at work behind the scenes. He causes all things, even the bad things that can come into your life this week or this year, or the good things that come into your life. He can cause all those things to work together for good. Remember Romans 8.28? Look with me at it. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's just a reminder for us that God allows difficult circumstances into our life for a greater purpose. Now on an earthly level, Samson will not move unless God stirs him according to this because of his own complacency. So God's going to use a difficult situation to provoke him. Now, his parents give in to the request for the marriage, just to sum it up real quickly for you. And they agree to arrange all the marriage details, and the betrothal period ends, and it's time for the ceremony. And the wedding events that they have at this period of time are way different than what we have. I'll just remind you real quickly, their their weddings go on for seven days. And in the Philistine culture, because he's going to marry a Philistine woman, they have what they call a mista, and it's a seven-day drinking party. So they invite all the bachelors in town to come and hang out with Samson and and have this festival. It's part of the Philistine tradition. And what you find in the middle of it is all his Nazarite vows are broken flagrantly during this period of time. Seven-day stag party. Now, during this period of time, when the guys are really drunk, he decides to wager a bet with them, and he proposes a riddle. He's thinking he can get some money from this wedding event. They're thinking they can get some money from this wedding event. So he proposes a really hard riddle. They can't come up with a solution. They begin pestering his new bride. And he, in turn, is pestered by his bride to give in the secret to the riddle. You read about it later yourself in chapter 14. But essentially, this is what happens. She gets it out of him, the answer to the riddle. It's the seventh day. He thinks, what could possibly go wrong now? They had to solve it in seven days. She immediately tells those people. They come and give him an answer to the riddle. And he knows immediately, he is furious that his bride has betrayed him. And then he calls his new wife a heifer, which I told you is never a good thing, right? (laughs) And beyond that, he says to those guys he had the bet with, you cheated, but he has to make good on his debt. He's got to pay back these 30 garments of clothing in order to exchange the money that he would have lost on that. So because of all of these events coalescing together, It triggers a war against the Philistines. He actually is the trigger for it, and it gets really intense. Verse 19, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his friend. But he doesn't know that detail, and that's where we stop, so it took us like eight to ten minutes to recap where we left off at a few weeks ago, just so we're all on the same page. Now, you might remember that a marriage at this period of time is not fully consummated until the seventh day when it's physically consummated. So Samson and his wife have never slept together. It's the seventh day. The physical consummation will make the marriage legal, but Samson has skedaddled out of town. He's furious. He's raging. He's gone back to his parents' house. He's so mad at his new bride that he's nowhere to be found. And so the father-in-law, the father of the bride, decides he doesn't want her to be embarrassed or disgraced. So very soon after the wedding, he gives his daughter away to the best man. And Samson doesn't know this. And he's still fuming, and he's so furious that he's left this nightmare of a wedding behind him. Now, that's in the spring. He mopes all summer long, and he decides when fall rolls around that he's going to make his way back to where his new bride is at and essentially say to her, hey, I'd like to start over. Can we pick up where we left off? But his father-in-law will not let him in, verse 1, chapter 15. But after a while, in the time of wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat, because that's what every young bride wants, right? And said, I will go into my wife in her room, but her father did not let him enter. Her father said, I really thought you hated her intensely, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please let her be yours instead. Samson then said to them, this time... I shall be blameless in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. Now, if reconciliation was his hope, rage will become his response. He is off the charts with revenge. Verse 4, Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches and turned the foxes' tails tail to tail and put one torch in the middle between two tails. When he had set fire to the torches, he released the foxes into the standing grain of the Philistines, thus burning up both the shocks and the standing grain, pay attention to this, along with the vineyards and the groves. And they're an agrarian society. And they've spent the entire summer putting a crop in so that they can raise this crop to sell it to sustain themselves for their economy. And he has just torched their economy. This is serious financial disaster for these people. So when the Philistines find out what he's done, they go looking for the person who they think is to blame, and they want to take it out on the father of the bride because they think he's to blame. And so this is part of that very dark component of this story. They incinerate him and the girl, the one who is supposed to be the bride of Samson, verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son in law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion, meaning the father in law took Samson's wife and gave her to the best man. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, Since you act like this, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that I will quit. He struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter, and he went down and lived in the cleft of the rock of Atom." I assume the cleft of the rock of Atom is part of a cave system. So he's hanging out in this area that's very rocky, apparently. It's got cliffs associated with it. When Samson hears what they have done, he is furious. And he is so out of control, his rage becomes incomprehensible. And you should notice as you're reading this story, he takes no personal responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't say, yeah, I I did that. I I actually shouldn't have done what I did. That that probably caused them to do what they did. No, there's there's no ownership whatsoever. As a matter of fact, look with me at the King James Version of verse 8. You see it on the screen. You may have your Bible even open and maybe you have a King James Version, but it reads this way. He attacked them, hip and thigh, with great slaughter. Hip and thigh is a slang from the ancient world that means from top to bottom. It means he eviscerates them, literally disemboweling these people. The guy's bulletproof. There's nothing they can do to harm him. And he is so furious, he takes it out with this unrelenting, violent assault. Literally, Samson has a scorched earth policy. He scorched their economy. He scorched their vineyards, their groves, all their crops. Now they've got dead bodies scattered all over the countryside. And they don't want to put up with this anymore. Remember, God is using Samson's fury as an instrument of judgment against the Philistines and to trigger the Israelites to shake them. So verse 9, then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. The men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So if you're not familiar with the Bible, the men of Judah are Jews, they're Israelites. Why have you come up against us? And they said, we have come up to bind Samson in order to do to him as he did to us. So you see how revenge is playing out. Well, you did this to me. Well, you did that to me, so I'm going to do this to you. Well, you did that to me, and I'm going to do this to you. Well, you did that to me. And it keeps going back and forth, and we're going to take it out on you. And now they show up and say, we want Samson. And so they show up in force with this implicit threat against the people of Israel. You either turn him over to us, or we're going to do to you what he's been doing to us. So this obviously freaks out the people of Judah, the people of Israel, and we get verse 11. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. Now, with all this violent slaughter going on, and because Samson is now living among the rocks... I'm kind of picturing this dude as like Conan the Barbarian, right? And he's standing out on the cliff of the rock when his friends, quote unquote, show up. The Israelites arrive on the scene with these 3,000 warriors, and in my mind, I'm seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger walking out on the cliff of the rock. What do you want? <laughs> right? We need to set things straight here. What have you done to us? Now, his fellow Jews have arrived, and he finds out that they're not there to say, we have your back, Samson. And you want insight into how far these people have actually wandered away from God? They're actually there to support the Philistines and turn their rescuer over to the enemy. With these kind of statements, what are you doing disrupting our status quo? Don't you know we like it the way it is? This is a good life that we have, and you're messing it up for us. Which makes me think of Jesus because the Pharisees did the exact same thing with him in relation to the Romans. Stop doing what you're doing. We like our life the way it is. Don't tick off the Romans. What you find as you work through the story of Samson is you constantly see similarities of this deliverer, although imperfect is a projection of the future deliverer. Over and over and over again, it's repeated in this story. Verse 12, "'They said to him, "'We have come down to bind you, "'so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines.'" And Just pause there for a second. Just speculate with me. I'm speculating at this moment there is a long sigh on Samson's part. Like, really? You guys are going to do that? And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me. Now, I'm pretty confident that that's just a mental ploy on his part in order to get inside the camp of the Philistines. Verse 13, So they said to him, No, but we will bind you fast and give you into their hands. Yet surely we will not kill you. Yet they won't, but they know the Philistines want to kill him. So then they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So in some ridiculous visual tactic, Samson allows his hands to be tied with new rope. You may as well try and put handcuffs on Superman. It will have no effect whatsoever. Now, his reputation is such that even his fellow Israelites are so afraid of this guy and his enormous strength that they stand back at a distance, but they're also refusing to have His back. You and I have the benefit of history. We get to look back over time and read these stories and we can see He is afraid of absolutely no one. So you can tell right away, this totally smells like a setup. Well, it absolutely is. Verse 14, when He came to, came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met Him, it's a, it's a victory cheer, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have killed a thousand men. Believe it or not, I've done some research on the jawbone of a donkey. And if you do that later today, don't do it right now, (laughs) but I think you'll find some of the things that I found that are remarkable. In the structure of a jawbone of a donkey, you'll find that the, the mandible bones here, they're actually connected by a really strong chin bone. And when the animal decays, the jaw doesn't fall apart, it stays together. In other words, it's like a triangle of bone. And we're told that this is a a freshly killed donkey, which means the teeth are still intact in the jaw. So he uses this triangle of nine-inch bone, nine-inch jaws, typical of, of a donkey, with these teeth that are sticking out that are jagged. He uses this as a weapon. He picks up the nearest thing that he can find and eviscerates the enemy and kills a thousand of them with this jawbone, and then piles the bodies heaps upon tops of heaps. And the Jews actually renamed this place called Jawbone Hill, Ramoth La'ai, that's the name that's given to it. And then this really bizarre thing takes place in verse 16, he begins singing a song. He sings a song about what he's just done. Very strange. But he's exhausted at the end of it. You come to verse 18 and he's so thirsty for the first time you find Samson, that's recorded in his life, praying. And he's essentially saying to God, you did a great thing here. You worked through me. And then we come into the very difficult component of this story. We transition over to chapter 16. This is where I want to slow the pace down just a little bit with you because this is when he brings another woman into his life. Chapter 16, verse 1, now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When it was told the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, let us wait until morning light, and then we will kill him. Now, Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the city of the gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. Then he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Now, this is a military action. If you take the gates of a city, a military action is essentially saying, we've taken your gates, we have conquered you. If you can conquer your enemy's gates, you've conquered your enemy. And what you might not know is this is the Bronze Age, and it's right at the tail end of the Bronze Age leading into the Iron Age. And there's something remarkable about these gates I'll get into in just a moment. Back up with me, though, mentally. In verse 1, you just read that he's with a prostitute. But if you go back a verse before that, you're in chapter 15. And chapter 15 ends by saying... And Samson judged Israel for 20 years, as though his life is over at that point. What it's doing from 15 to 16 is it's telling you he's in the last days of his life because of the events that are happening here. So he's been judging, delivering Israel, protecting Israel for 20 years. There is so much that we don't have record of, of this guy, but assuming that he started at age 18 maybe 20, so he's about 38 or 40 years of age now. He's been doing this for 20 years, so this guy is in the prime of his life. He's young enough to be powerful and potent, yet he's old enough and experienced enough to demonstrate some degree of wisdom, and the Philistines have decided they've had enough of him, it is time to capture him, which is absolutely fruitless because the guy's bulletproof, so he decides what he's going to do this time is actually uproot the city gates of Gaza and carry it on his shoulders 38 miles to the top of Mount Hebron, which is a 2,500 ascent above sea level. So he's got these gates on his shoulders, which in the Bronze Age of a typical city of this period of time is 14 feet wide. The gates are coated in bronze, made with a wood base, set with iron poles, set in concrete, their version of concrete, chiseled stone essentially. We're told that He doesn't just pick up the gates, He picks up the bars, He picks up the poles and puts this on His shoulders, 14 foot wide gate and carries it 38 miles up to the top of Mount Hebron. What's going on here? He's demonstrating some degree of restraint and wisdom by saying, You guys have no idea who you're messing with. Back off. Because if you conquered your enemy's gates, you've conquered your enemy. That's not a back off for them. That just stokes them. So we've got a guy who is superhero status, we would call him. Superhuman strength with a super sinful, fatal attraction in his life that follows him throughout all of his undisciplined existence. Samson's greatest weakness is now going to be focused on one person and one person alone, and it's going to lead to inevitable disaster. Verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 4. After this came about that he, that he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him, and see where his great strength lies, and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. Then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now, if you don't know this, the Hebrew language is really colorful, and it uses terms that we wouldn't use, especially on a Sunday morning in a church service. So when it uses the terms entice, that's a very polite English way of saying Um, We want you to use your female equipment to do things that we can't do. In other words, we want you to prostitute yourself to get this guy to give up the information. He's been with a prostitute earlier, but now he's really drawn to Delilah. And these Philistine leaders know this about him. And so they lay a trap, and they put her in his path, and they entice him because it's a plot to find out his secret strength. And they've said, we'll give you 1,100 shekels of silver per person. Each of us will do that. Well, there's five of them, five kings over the Gaza area. So five times 1,100, we're going to give you 5,500 shekels of silver. The average person living at this period of time, they earned 10 shekels of silver in an entire year. So they have just offered her 550 years of wages. That's how much they want Samson. That's how much they want to destroy this destroyer and take him out. So they lay a trap for him. Verse 6, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. (laughs) Just pause there for a minute. Obviously Delilah didn't go to spy school, right? She's not real subtle about this, and she apparently doesn't have much training, but I'm sure it's more of a girlfriend-boyfriend kind of thing, like, Samson, you're so strong. I'm sure she's curling her hair and poking at him. Where did you get those massive biceps? So he begins playing back with her, and he toys with her. Four different times she tries the same kind of thing, but watch his response to her. If Samson said to her, verse 7, if they bind me with seven fresh cords and have not, that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. And the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in, her, in wait in her inner room and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toe snaps when it touches fire, so his strength was not discovered. Assuming you don't know what a string of toe is, when you burn a candle and it's got the leftover wick at the top, the little piece of ash that's at the top of the wick that's been burned, that's the strength of a string of toe. It just it goes to fuzz instantly. That's what happened with these strings that are wrapped around him. I told you that she does this over and over again because there is a fortune at stake. So Delilah is happy to keep up the seduction and she repeatedly manipulates him. You can read about it later. What I want you to do is drop all the way down to verse 16 with me. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. Now, they're not married, but this is acting like a henpeck situation where she will not let up. Verse 17, so he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. Just hang there. Think about what he's just done, and go with me to verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. And she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. Very, very sad verse. So she said, the Philistines are on you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. What's the violation in revealing his vow? He obviously has had vows throughout his life and he didn't honor them at all. None of them except this one. The one thing that God said through the angel when he was talking to the mom, a razor shall never touch his head. The guy's like 40 years old. He's got obviously some serious dreadlocks going on. They've they've woven them together in such a way that he's got these seven locks that are hanging from him. And he says, if those are gone, I've got no power. Finish it out. Verse 21. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bought, bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison, which is not uncommon at this time. Enemies are incredibly brutal to each other. We've seen that throughout these stories that we've been reading. And you're left reading this and saying, What good could possibly come from this mess? He's a blind grinder in the dungeons working with a heavy millstone that goes around in a circle of work that's reserved for a team of oxen, and this is what they have this powerful guy doing here? For me, church, it's, it's the silent space in between verses 21 and 22 that gets my attention. There's a humbling that takes place in the life of an individual who has flagrantly walked away from God. And Samson is in that place right now. If you have found yourself in that place, you know what Samson's going through. You can identify with this, where willful sin in your life has broken your world. And typically what's asked when individuals are in situations like that is this, how in the world did I get here? How did I get reduced to this? Fully knowing how all at the same time, but just expressing it like, oh. See, it's, it, it's in those moments of brokenness that many people come to their senses when everything has been removed and taken away. In that space in between, in those quiet moments when he's working like an ox and he's grinding out the millstones, When we're in that place of humility is where God can do surgery on our heart. In Samson's life, that's clearly what's going on here. This heavy labor that's been reserved for a team of oxen, this toilsome, meaningless labor, we don't even know how long he's down there. But then along comes verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. I don't know about you, but if I'm the Philistine barber, I'm down visiting that guy every week. Right? How in the world are they letting his hair grow? Somebody kind of lost their responsibilities. That's where most of us go when we're reading this. But think this through. His hair was never the source of his strength. It's the presence of God in his life. That's why verse 20 is so powerful. Look at it again. Judges 16, verse 20. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. See, his uncut hair, that's merely a representation of this life that was supposed to be set apart for God. As uncommitted as he was, as flagrant as his lifestyle was, all through his life, God has been with him. So you have to be asking yourself, okay, so why now? What's the breach here? Well, he's clearly crossed a line. Notice he's so out of touch with God that he doesn't even know that God left. The breach in his life is so powerful that sin has reached a turning point. And he tells Delilah what he's never told anyone else. And essentially he's saying this, you, Delilah, are more important to me than even my relationship with God. I give you preeminence. He's fully apostatizing. God, I know what you want. I'm going the other way. So this weakness in his life, this thing has overtaken him to the point where it has completely destroyed him upon which God departs. He doesn't even know it. And throughout his life, he's been blinded by his enormous strength, he's been blinded by his lust, he's been blinded by his arrogance, and now he's been blinded physically by these godless captors. But here's where you find hope in the story. It's not too late. Even though he is full of all this flagrant sin and walking away from God, God has purpose for him when he gets his spiritual act together because your God is rich in mercy and rich in patience. He's patient with you. I know he's patient with me. He's patient with Samson. He is incredibly patient. Even when we flagrantly walk away from God, And commit the most depraved acts. Hold that thought. Verse 23. Now the Lord of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God. And to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. Even the pagans recognize this is a spiritual battle. Their god is a god, small g. They're giving all the credit to their spiritual god, small g, Dagon. They recognize this is way more than a military issue. Our god's bigger than your god. Our god conquered your god. Look what our god did for us. He took out the destroyer of our country. Now, if you're the advisor to the Philistines, you might want to step back and say, yeah, you guys might not want to say that. That's a really dangerous statement. They're celebrating Dagon, this God, small g, of stone, as the one who finally broke Samson. I know this about the God of the Bible. You want to get the attention of the God of the Bible, the one true God, just try giving credit for things that he's done to a stone God that'll tick him off. God does not share His glory with anyone. Can I get an amen? Amen. He doesn't. So we have verse 25, and so it happened when they were in high spirits, meaning they are totally tanked, that they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. Now you'll see this word, repeat several times here, it means make us laugh. Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So that they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. So this carnival spectacle is escalating to the degree that they are so drunk that the foolishness absolutely increases to the degree that they demand to see this humiliated strong man. And Samson blindly stumbles into their presence among all the jeering, all the jesting, all the scornful mockery. Now, archaeologists who examine buildings from this period are very much the same archaeologists who look at Roman structures and Greek structures, and they tell us that in every case, when these monstrous stone buildings were built, even though they're lined with pillars on the outside, there was always two center pillars on which the weight of the entire superstructure depended. And if those two monolithic columns were removed, the building would collapse. That's where you find Samson in the middle between these two columns. Now catch this how it ends. In one climactic, self-sacrificing act, we find verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time. O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he braced himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines, and he bent with all his might. Pause right there. We'll finish it out in just a second. Catch this. A flash of supernatural physical strength is surging through his body. And we hold that thought because that's where he's at, wedged between these two pillars. And I hold that thought because there's something greater going on. Most people interpret this story and look at that as just the physical outcome, but notice spiritually, church, what is going on. There's something much greater going on here that is often missed. Samson has just legitimately prayed to God. Does God hear the legitimate prayers of His people? Thief on the cross turns to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Are you ever going to be more desperate than the thief on the cross? No way. You know your life is hours from evaporating. Genuine, authentic, legitimate, prayerful request. On Samson's part, in this moment, God, will you remember me? It's way more than the thief on the cross. He comes right out and says, I want you to not just remember me, but strengthen me, God. I want to do what you designed me for. So he's wedged between these pillars. We catch him in that physical moment when something greater is going on here that is often missed. There is a progressive, greater descent into corruption by the people of this era, and by people of our culture, that results in something that is very difficult to get past in human strength. A progressively greater descent into sinful behavior produces each time a much more superficial repentance. God, I'm so sorry I shouldn't have disobeyed you. Will you forgive me? God forgives but we keep repeating the behavior and repeating the behavior and repeating the behavior and a superficial descent into repentance takes place with this constant, repetitive behavior of egregious sin. And what happens is there there is a crusting over of the emotional heart, what the Bible calls a seared conscious, a calloused heart. Because sin is repeated over and over and over and over again. And I think if any of you have walked with Jesus long enough, you know that when someone's in that situation, it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that that person has been able to break free from sinful behavior. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that can open up a calloused heart. For Samson to get to this place where he is desperately pleading with God, you know that a true work of God has taken place even in the last hours of this guy's life. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. And when the Holy Spirit brings conviction, it is never superficial because that kind of conviction produces life change. It is absolutely legitimate, and it is visible in the humility of that person. Many of us today are prime examples of that. There's a point in your life where you rejected and pushed away what God was trying to show you and calling you to a walk with Jesus, that you would be forgiven of your sins. And perhaps you pushed it away for a long, long time. But ultimately, because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, God decided through his amazing grace to open up your eyes and reveal to you who Jesus really is. And you know forgiveness of sin. You're prime examples of Samson. Samson. He's exactly in that place. In Samson's case, you cannot plead with God the way that he's pleading and have the God of the universe who knows all respond in the way that he has responded without there being genuine repentance. That's why I say this guy has his spiritual act together at this point. He's in that unique place of understanding that God and God alone can provide what we desperately need. Verse 30 finishes, and he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. With each massive arm he takes hold of the monolithic pillar on his right and the monolithic power pillar on his left and slightly they begin to move and it's confirmation for him. Without question, he knows the true source of his strength. God has empowered him. I've done the calculations, church. We're told that there's 3,000 people on the roof of this building. At 150 pounds per person, that's a minimum of 450,000 pounds of weight just in the humans alone, plus the weight of the building, plus the power of these monolithic structures. And no sooner does he feel the pillars begin to move with explosion of unimaginable power, the columns begin to buckle in a catastrophic collapse. And it crushes 3,000 people, let alone all the people, inside the building. And very sadly, Samson dies, broken and humble. But just like the thief on the cross, with his heart realigned with God in the last moments of his life, and that's why the writers of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 put him in the hall of faith. Samson was one who didn't lose faith and stay lost. He came back to God, recognizing his relationship with God, and so the writer of Hebrews elevates him as one who had his faith restored. Verse 31. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and brought him and buried him in between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. Thus he had judged Israel 20 years. Absolutely tragic because he was built for so much more than this. But what you've seen today is that a reminder that even the strongest among us is absolutely incapable in our own strength. And it takes humility to acknowledge that reality. Samson's greatest need is that Samson needed to be rescued himself, a deliverer who needed to be delivered. And without question, he's a powerful guy. He's got everything. He's self-sufficient. He's very smart. Ladies seem to adore him. He succeeds in whatever he puts his mind to. He has it all. But tragically, it's all misdirected energy, and this superhuman strength became his undoing. So here's my last thought. How great would it be to read about how God uniquely built him to accomplish God's intended purposes, and to also read that this guy lived righteously like Daniel, or like Isaiah, or like Elijah? It'd be extraordinary in all of human history to find just one individual who had it all, who had everything and lived a totally righteous life. Well, that would be Jesus. There's only one that had everything and lived a totally perfect, righteous life. That would be Jesus. And that one who had everything gave up everything so that you might become the righteousness of God, so that you in your incapacity, your inability, in our own weakness might be made strong because the one who knew no sin became sin for us. (laughs) It's astounding to me. So I, I end with this thought, Philippians 2, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a great setup for communion. It's all the things that the New Testament writers are talking about. The one who had everything, who died with his arms, also spread open wide, just like Samson, that one, he didn't die because of his sin, he died because of our sin. So we get the writers of the New Testament telling us, and if you're new to New Hope, bear with me for one paragraph, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I always read this before you come up and take up the elements Paul writes, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Our tradition here is that you can come up to the tables. They're in the back in the atrium and here in the front. Go to any table you want and pick up the elements and take them back to your seat. But that you would examine yourself because the price that was paid by our great strong man Jesus is so great. God says, do not take this for granted. Take this seriously. Examine yourself. Examine where you're at in your walk with God. If you've got something to confess, confess it in your seat. It's quietness of your moment where you're at. If you're ready at that point, come up to the table, pick up the elements, take it back to your seat. But this time, right now, is to talk to God about the great strong man that delivered you and examine yourself.